And I've got a sermon outline on the back of the uh, the, the newsletter there, but uh, I've also got a prayer inside the bulletin, which I'm going to ask that we all pray, pray together now. So these are these are words that the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the Apostle Paul to write. So this is a this is a, a wonderful prayer uh, written by God Himself for us to pray back to Him. So can you see it there on the bottom of the inside? Uh, Ephesians three nineteen to twenty one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We ask that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we, your church, may be filled with all the fullness of God so that to you would be the glory in this, your church, and in Christ Jesus today and throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we've been thinking about what it means to belong to God and uh, and his church. Uh, we need to confess that we live in a very individualistic culture and the version of Christianity that many of us have grown used to is a very individualistic thing. So it's about me and Jesus and about um, you know, our prayers are often for the things that concern us rather than uh, for the needs of a church but we need to understand that God's purpose is much bigger than just a whole bunch of individuals um, I know someone well who had to attend well they, they chose to attend some meetings with a counsellor they were going through some difficult times and as he told me his story of the first meeting um, the, the fellow said to him well who are you and he, just, he went through he rattled off all the things father, husband, brother Employee went through all the things that identified him, and he said, "Yeah, but who are you really?" So he was probing deeper than just the superficial things. Now, if you were asked that question, "Who are you really?" What sort of things would you list? What might be at the top of your list? I'd like to think when when he told me the story, I'd like to think that my first response would have been, "I'm in Christ." Is, is your relationship with Jesus the... Is that the most fundamental thing about you? Don't put your hand up, but it, it's worth thinking about. What, what's, you know, what, what really is the defining characteristic of who you are? But some years ago I was involved in a little Christian activity and the person leading it asked us the question. He said, what's better than being a child of God? Now I knew it was a trick question because I couldn't think of anything better than being a child of God. So I didn't give him an answer because I knew whatever I said would be wrong, right? Because that's what happens with trick questions. But what is the answer? What's the question? What's the answer to the question, what's better than being a child of God? The answer is being one of God's children. Now think about that. Right. Each of us here has been brought into a relationship with, I trust we have, uh, we, we, we understand that God has become our father. He has adopted us because we have received his son as our saviour and so that gives us this privilege of knowing God the creator of the universe as a father but it binds us together with the other members of God's family so we are God's children we're not in this on our own we're doing this together and that's what the church is the church is, is an expression of a a whole bunch of people who've decided that they want to trust Jesus, they, they need their sins forgiven and they join together in the family of faith, the body of Christ which is known as the church. 
And so over the last few weeks we've been thinking about the idea of what it means to be a church and in Ephesians chapter 2 we read that we're sinners saved by grace uh, whether Jew or Gentile, all of the ancient ethnic barriers have been broken down because Jesus is creating a new humanity a new humanity where he's at the centre and where ethnic barriers are no longer uh, all that significant. Uh, we read in Ephesians 3 that the mystery of the church, that these ethnic barriers are being broken down, is uh, a great demonstration that God is doing in, in a viewing audience of uh, the, the, the supernatural powers, both evil and good. Uh, that the Jews and Gentiles, everybody in the world can be a member of Christ's body and then uh, even people who are not ethnically Jewish can be co-inheritors of the same promises that God has made to the Jewish people. But then we saw in the story of the uh, so-called Good Samaritan that, uh, th- that the love of God that's been poured into our hearts needs to be expressed in neighbourliness. And do you remember the lawyer in the, the story of the Good Samaritan? He wanted to know who wasn't his neighbour. And Jesus says everyone is. And so as we think about church in particular, who here is not our neighbour? And the answer is everyone is. So who here should you not have to love? The answer is no one. Now the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians says, as you have opportunity, do good to all. So everyone's our neighbour. But he says, but in particular, the people of the household of faith. So everyone's our neighbour, but we need to pay particular concern for our brothers and sisters in the church. So church is a gathering. Church isn't a building. We've talked about that before, but church is a gathering. Church isn't just a group of people with their names in the same telephone directory. Church is what happens when God's people gather. So what does the church do when it gathers? And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. What should define the activity of a church? Some years ago when our kids were little and having birthday parties, um, my young son Tom had some friends home for a birthday party and I just got home from school and he had all of his friends and they seemed happy enough just talking for a while. And I thought, well, I've just got home, you know, I need a breather too. Um, And I thought, we'll get started on the party things in a little while. Well, one of the kids said, well, now that we're here, what are we going to do? And clearly my desire to have a few moments with my feet up wasn't on his agenda now that we're here what are we going to do he said it's a fair question well now that we're here what are we going to do what does the bible tell us that we should be doing this is where we need to read acts chapter 2 so go to acts chapter 2 and we've just finished a series on the book of acts and i actually preached on this a few years ago but perhaps you've forgotten so we'll go back over it but this is what the church does when it gathers well here's a snapshot of Christians gathering. So Acts chapter 2, we're picking it up at verse 42. This is a summary. Uh, after Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and the, the growth of the church, there were 3,000 people saved on that particular day. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul... And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a snapshot. It's just a summary of the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. And so we read there that um, they were devoted to four things. What were they devoted to? To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What does it mean to be devoted to something? It means you are singularly committed to something. If you're devoted to something, it means you are going to be intent on giving the object of your devotion the fullest extent of what you can give. It means you're going to hold fast and you're going to persevere in diligently pursuing something. Diligent pursuit. What of? Well, in the first instance, of the apostles' teaching. So the earliest Christian believers were diligent in seeking out the teaching of the apostles. Now, a good question to ask is, what is the apostles' teaching? Should we be seeking out any other teaching than the Apostles' teaching? So what is the Apostles' teaching? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to, you can flick back and see that I'm not telling you in fibs, but have a look at it there. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, when Luke introduces his book, he says in the first book, which we know is the Gospel of Luke, in the first book I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that suggests that the second book, which we call the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do and teach. But how? Through the apostles and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what did Jesus teach the apostles to teach? That's a big question. So you need to turn back a few pages. Now, I think it's a bit unfortunate that the Gospel of John is between the book of Acts and the book of Luke. I think it would be really good if when the Bible was laid out, if the Gospel of John was put perhaps at the head of the the Gospels, or it wasn't. So we just have to imagine that John's not there for the moment. We need to look at how Luke finishes his Gospel. So go to Luke 24. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 2, because we're coming back to that. But go for a moment to Luke 24, because this is where we get a real sense of what Jesus taught the apostles they had to teach. So the the earliest believers were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and this is what they were to teach. So Luke 24 verses 44 to 45, or 49, um, Jesus in the upper room, after he's been raised from the dead, he meets with his disciples again and he teaches them that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So that there is a summary of what Jesus taught his apostles that they had to teach. Now, I really enjoyed teaching through the book of Acts, as we've done here over the last little while. And I learned a lot about the gospel through having to teach the book of Acts, because I've never taught the whole of it before. I've taught bits of it, but I've never taught the whole of it. 
But I think I understand the gospel better now than I did at the beginning of teaching the book of Acts. And so one thing I did during the week to get ready for today was I went through every example we have in the the book of Acts of the, the apostles' teaching and what they did when they proclaimed the message of Jesus in, ver- in front of various audiences. And it's really interesting because it's like Jesus' essay plan in Luke 24 is what drove the apostles' teaching. It's very interesting to see what they included in their talks. So the things that Jesus taught here was what the apostles had laid on their hearts and that, that becomes the foundation of their teaching. And so they teach about Jesus uh, and they teach the things that Jesus taught. And so this is a summary of what you can find in the book of Acts as the teaching of Jesus. And this is what the apostles passed on. The last days that the prophets had said were coming have come. They've arrived. We're in the last days. That's what the, the apostles wanted to teach. Scripture has been fulfilled so Jesus says there, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The apostles came out and they said, it has been. Scripture's been fulfilled. God's kingdom has come and is coming in, in God's promised king, the Messiah, Jesus. And therefore, since the king has come, that requires a complete change of mind. People must respond to the message of Jesus by repentance. Now, repentance is often missing in the way that Christians explain the good news today. These days, over and over again, when the gospel is explained, Christians seem to want to reduce it to nothing more than God loves you. And it's interesting, in fact I found it fascinating, there is not one single reference to God's love in the book of Acts. Is that a surprise? It surprised me. But for all the time you hear the gospel explained as being a demonstration of God's love, not once do the apostles teach that. What they do teach is God has done what he promised. He has sent a king who will bring peace to the world just as he promised to the Jewish people through their scriptures all of that's been fulfilled and since it's been fulfilled and it's been demonstrated to have been fulfilled by this king dying for sin and rising again that demands a response you must repent you must have your mind changed you must have the direction of your life changed but you can't go on as you were that's the message of the book of acts that's the apostles teaching now do you believe that have you repented have you come face to face with jesus god's king who's going to rule the world from sea to sea when he returns Have you repented and devoted your life to him? Because that's the message. He is coming and those who have decided to stay in rebellion to God's king will suffer eternal punishment. And that's a clear part of the message of Acts as well. So that's the apostles' teaching. It demands life change. It demands repentance. The uh, the gospel is much more than just telling fascinating stories about Jesus. It's about telling the meaning of his life. Um, and so that's what the, the earliest believers were devoted to, learning from the scriptures who Jesus is. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Next thing they're devoted to is the fellowship, back to Acts, back to Acts chapter 2. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, 
and they're devoted to the fellowship. What do we mean when we say fellowship? Is that what we have over morning tea? Is that what we mean? There's some churches who own their own property who have the place where we meet and then where they go after is the fellowship hall. So this isn't fellowship, that's fellowship. And it usually involves a cup of tea and a biscuit, right? Fellowship is much, much bigger than mingling for 10 or 15 minutes and having a cup of tea together. It's much bigger than that. And so when the Bible was written, it used language that everybody in that world understood very well. Fellowship means to have something in common that you express at a very serious level. The word fellowship actually is a business word. It's a word that means that you are involved in a business partnership with someone else where each is depending on the other for the success of the joint enterprise. Does that make sense? So you've invested money in a joint exercise and you are each committed to making sure it works. That's what the word fellowship meant in in Bible times. It's a business word. So what does it mean for Christians to have fellowship? Well, it means that we are equally invested in the joint project of demonstrating God's glory to the world. Christian fellowship means that we have this in common. We've all been forgiven, we've been made brothers and sisters in Christ and we're part of a joint project. And that project will be expressed in Mafra and it'll be expressed in Chad and Niger and Sub-Saharan Africa and all around the world. But we're partners in a project wanting to make Jesus known so that others can be saved. That's what our fellowship is. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to this rich idea of fellowship, of partnership. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now on the surface, we might think, well, that means that they like to have communion together. And it probably does mean that. But I think it probably means more than that because the term breaking bread is just a, a, a shorthand way of saying eating together. And so the earliest believers gave expression to their joint faith in Christ, the fact that they were forgiven by the king of the universe, they gave expression to that by eating together, by sharing meals. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But it's a powerful thing and they were devoted to it. So are you devoted to the idea of sharing your family meal table with other believers? What's what's so important about eating together? What happens when you eat together? The barriers come down and you start to talk. And you start to talk about more than superficial things. You start to talk about important things. And that's where fellowship is built up. Over a meal, when you're sharing who you are and they're sharing who they are, you're getting to know each other at a much deeper level with the people that you're partnering with so that you can pray more intelligently for them, so that you can love them more. Now, this idea of breaking bread does... I think it does mean breaking bread together to to represent that we're... Uh, the Lord's people in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion but I think it's, I think it's more than that I think, it's the, I think it's hospitality as well and so are we a hospitable church are you devoted to hospitality because it seems that the earliest believers were and it was a significant cause of, of the growth of the church 
So the earliest believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, look, I don't know how your Bible translates this, uh, but in the ESV that I'm preaching from, uh, that I think when I learnt this verse in the NIV, it says they were devoted to prayer, but it's actually the prayers, right? To prayer. Well, that, that's actually a fairly weak translation, unfortunately, um, because it makes it sound like oh, you can be devoted to prayer and just pray on, on your own at home in your quiet time. But in the original language, this is definitely to the prayers. And so, so that has the, the suggestion that there were set times of prayer. Now, we know that the earliest believers used to go off to the temple because at the temple there were three prayers a day. And as often as they could, they'd, they'd head off to the temple to be involved in that. But it seems that the church had set times of prayer also and the people were devoted to turning up to it. Now, here's a challenge, friends. If you go home a little bit challenged, that won't do anybody any harm. But how devoted are you to the church prayer meeting, really? Would it matter to you if the church prayer meeting ceased to exist? Now, you don't have to answer me, but I want you to think about it. The thing is, set times for seeking God together in prayer are a characteristic of a devoted people. And I have a feeling that the health of any church can be best measured by the things that people turn up to. That's that's my feeling. Now these people, and this is a summary of the earliest Christians that led to real growth, they were devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, the teaching about Jesus, the teaching from Jesus, the teaching that reveals that Jesus is the world's king, he's coming to reign, he's died to save us, he's been raised, and you must repent. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, is that a characteristic of Mafra? Does Mafra Community Church fit that description? And if it doesn't, what are you doing about it? Because it's easy to sit back and criticise. It's much harder to be part of the solution. Much harder to be part of the solution. But anyway, verse forty-three. As a result of that devotion, it seems, awe came upon every soul. So, in other words, news about this church spread throughout Jerusalem, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, signs and wonders is a big issue of debate. We haven't got time to go into all those sorts of things now, but just to say it simply, signs and wonders are not a part of the Bible story at every point. Uh, There's quite a number of very significant Bible people for whom signs and wonders are not connected. Uh, They're chiefly associated with the Exodus, where God saved his people out of Egypt, and again, they show up in the ministry of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, just flick back to that, when Peter's preaching at the day of, on the day of Pentecost, he says that Jesus is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So that's how he represents Jesus to the congregation listening that day. So Jesus was attested. In other words, it was demonstrated that he was somebody quite extraordinary by the fact that signs and wonders were being done. Now, the apostles were doing signs and wonders. What was the point of it in God's scheme? to show that they were the bearers of Jesus' message in a unique way. 
So just because it's happened sometimes in the Bible doesn't make it normal that it happens all the time. Uh, And certainly signs and wonders are not all the way through every section of scripture. We've got to remember that sometimes the Bible describes things without necessarily prescribing them. So yes, they happen, but they don't happen all the time. They happened to attest the ministry of Jesus and then later to, to attest the ministry of the apostles. But all came upon every soul because of this devoted church. But down to verse 44. And all who believe, these are some of the responses, some of the consequences of this devoted church. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Now that's another instance of description, not prescription. Now there have been some Christian churches over the centuries that have decided, right, now that we've trusted Jesus, I'm not going to own my own lawnmower. And I'll share my dishwasher with the whole church. Right, they've shared everything in common. Now, quite often those attempts at communal living have ended in disaster, right? Don't know why, but they often do. But that's what the, the earliest believers were doing. They were sharing everything and making sure, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were making sure that there were no poor in the congregation. Now that's something that we can do without selling everything. We can make sure that we're looking after the people in our church. That's what fellowship looks like. Fellowship has a financial aspect to it. And so verse 46, day by day attending the temple, so they were still going to Jewish prayers together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. Now what we can say about those verses there is their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, then expressed itself very practically in down-to-earth, everyday kind of ways that made sure that no one was left out and it made an impression on people. And so as, as a result of that, in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's a snapshot of the earliest church in action. They're devoted to things... And they express that devotion in practical activity. And God blesses them with numerical growth. Now at that time, and for God's purposes, there was blessing and there was real multiplication. If multiplication is not happening, does that mean the church is sinful? Well, we've got to be careful before we jump to these conclusions. I'll tell you why. Because very faithful missionaries have gone to far-flung places and served wholeheartedly to the point of death without ever seeing a single convert. Now, I understand, I've heard this before, that the earliest Christian missionaries to Africa often used to pack their goods in a coffin because they realised they'd probably be needing it. And some of those missionaries lasted months, not years, because they died of tropical diseases. Does that mean the hand of blessing of God was not on them? The earliest Christian missionaries to China had very, very tough times and left behind very few converts. But when all the, all the missionaries were kicked out of the country, the church grew under God's hand. So the point when, when China was opened again, when Westerners came back in, they were, they were astounded at just how many Christians there were. So... There's numerical growth here. It's not necessarily the case that faithful work is always going to be blessed with numerical growth. But nonetheless, we're still called to be faithful. But we leave the 
the growth to God. So Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, um, one, one person plants the seed, another person waters, it's God who gives the increase. But what we're called to do is to be faithful and the, the, the vision of that faithfulness is in Acts 2.42. Be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and then express that devotion in practical activity. Now I want to finish by thinking, we're thinking, what does church do when it gathers? Well, we've just had a look at it. Does it matter if you don't gather? Does it matter if Christians don't show up? Because I've met too many who say it doesn't. And, and so I've met people who say, oh, I've had I have, I have wonderful times of fellowship with God at home when I'm reading my Bible and praying or listening to Christian music or something like that. And so they say, I can worship... I, I met a bloke once who said, I, can, I worship God best on my surfboard. I feel closest to God when I'm in the forest, they say. Um... Does it matter that you don't show up? Taking ember out of the fire of the dogs. Yes, very good. Thanks. You say a bit louder, Wendy, so everybody hear. Taking ember out of the fire of the dogs. Yeah, that's true. All right. That's a, that's a vivid image. But turn across to the book of Hebrews. I just want to show you three things from the book of Hebrews that point out, I think, just how significant it is for Christians to be together regularly. So Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews was written to people who were thinking about giving up being followers of Jesus and going back to the old ways of Judaism. And the writer of the Hebrews, we don't know who he was, but he's telling them that's a really bad idea. So go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And the writer to the Hebrews there says, Therefore, we must pay much much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Drift away from it. Go over to chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Go across to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the, one of the purposes of Christians gathering is for mutual encouragement. So when you're not here, someone's missing out on the encouragement that you could have given them. But when you're not here, you're missing out on the encouragement that you need from someone else. We're all here together for the purpose of being built up so that we can serve better. But the writer to the Hebrews identifies several things there that are a real danger to us. The first is drift. I doubt that there's many people who just wake up one morning and think, it's not true. I'm done with this. Most people just simply drift away and one of the tragedies of getting older in the faith is of knowing more and more people that have simply stopped believing what we thought they believed when they were younger so as I've got older 
I think back to the people that I used to do beach mission with, the people that I used to do camps with and, and, and youth group and all those sorts of things and many of them have just drifted away. If I could, I'd like to ask them, what new discovery have you got that's demonstrated that what you once said you believed is no longer true? But I doubt that answer. Most people who lose their faith simply drift away. Being in church is a constant reminder of the things that we share in common and it's an opportunity for you to see the example of other people and think, I need to be more like them. Right? That's why I keep coming to church, because I'm inspired by the example of my fellow believers. You'll meet some good people in church, I find. But the other thing is we need to be here. The writer to the Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And he says, and it can harden you. What's deceitfulness? What does that mean? What does it mean to be deceived? Tricked. Sin will trick you. Sin says to you, it's not that bad. Once won't hurt. That's what sin does. And after a little while of drifting... And being tricked by the deceitfulness of sin, your heart will become hardened. It's a fact. That's how the devil operates. Hardening people's hearts, causing them to drift away from the things that are important. So we need to be together to stir one another up to love and good work. C.S. Lewis, of course, has something useful to say about this. He says this in mere Christianity. He says, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? So here's my challenge. What's stopping you drifting? What's stopping you being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Part of the reason that churches exist is to keep people believing, just by, by way of reminder. The world's not neutral territory. We've got to remember that. You won't get any encouragement from the television to remain true to Jesus. You'll have to look carefully on the internet to find things that will encourage you to remain true to Jesus. But do the maths. Lots of Christians these days come to church twice a month. That's the reality. If you come to church twice a month and you hear a 30-minute sermon, that's one hour of Bible instruction a month, which is 12 hours of Bible instruction for a year, isn't it? Right? Most Australians watch more TV in a week. Now, where are you more likely to hear the things that will keep you from drifting, keep you from being deceived? Where are you more likely to hear it? Not on the telly. So can you afford not to be gathered with God's people under the sound of God's word? The internet turns out that the average Australian now spends 3 hours and 44 minutes a day. That's 112 hours per month on the internet. And I'm guessing that most Australian Christians, if they're equal to that, they're probably not just looking at the Gospel Coalition. Right? So... Today we've been thinking about why Christians gather. They gather to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Christians need to be hospitable. Christians need to keep thinking about the, the apostles' teaching about remembering Jesus. Those things need to be expressed practically because that's what God will bless with growth. And so the challenge for us is Acts 2.42-47, to 47, a good description of Mafra Community Church. If Jesus doesn't come first, will this church still be going in 100 years? Will it? Should be. Now, I've told you before about Granite Flat Community Church, haven't I? Have I told you about Granite Flat? I'm going to tell you again then. <laughs> Granite Flat Community Church. I'd heard of it when I was up in the Wimmera. And it used to be a Methodist church. And according to their website, they had a disagreement with their minister on theological issues in 1966. So I'm guessing that he was wanting to steer them down more liberal lines. So they parted company and became an independent church. It's still going. It's still a strong church. Granite Flats not far from Donald, out in the, the Wimmera. And uh, here's this little building in the corner of a farmer's paddock. So I'm guessing that some righteous, devout farmer type years ago gave a part of his paddock so that a church building could be erected. And that fellowship is still going. And they've been instrumental in sending missionaries around the world. Uh, they've been instrumental in keeping the Warwick de Beale Victorian Victorious Christian Life Convention going every Easter, which was started back in 1930 or something, and it's still going today. And that little church at Granite Flat, now I visited it some years ago, um, and it's just a good bunch of people, a bit like us. And I think, well, how is it a church can cling on in a, out, you know, sort of 10 miles out from a little country town? How, what do you think that would have, would have been the cause of that church enduring? What, what would it be? I reckon it's because they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. That's what I reckon. So will Mafra Community Church endure? That might. But it'll be, it'll be because we've devoted ourselves to these things. And that's a part that everybody here can play. Church is the gathering of God's people to do God's work in the world, uh, to hear from God, to encourage one another. But the future of Mafra Community Church is dependent on people being committed to these things. Does that make sense? Is it too hard? It's not hard at all. It's just a matter of it, prayerful dependence on God. So let's pray and commit ourselves to it. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we well, these are challenging words. But they're simple words. They're not hard to understand. So I pray that you would write them deeply on our hearts and, and cause us to be people uh, who, when Judgment Day comes, will have been shown to be people devoted to your church, devoted to the Apostles' teaching, devoted to the, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Please help us to be people devoted to your word and to prayer and to, to looking after each other, to seeing others built up and encouraged. Uh, help us to be quick to look for opportunities to lift up those who have stumbled, uh, to provide uh, help for those who are in need. Uh, help us always to be dependent on you in prayer, never self-reliant. And Father, keep us from the peril of drifting away or of having our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we ask that you would enable by your grace this church to continue faithfully uh, until the Lord Jesus returns and help us each to look to what we can do to contribute to that. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.